What is going on, everybody? Happy Monday and welcome to the podcast with the best advice. This is In Their 20s with your host, Landon Campbell. If you're listening to this episode on Monday morning, I hope everybody is enjoying a long 4th of July weekend, well-deserved, and just know that we have a fun episode planned for you all today. For episode 104, we were fortunate to speak with the Tim Draper, who is the founder of companies like Draper Associates, Draper University. Of course, he is known as a pioneer and the father of VC, making some great early bets in companies like Tesla, SpaceX, Webflow, Robinhood, and Coinbase. We spoke about so much during this interview, his formula for taking a risk in your 20s, his thoughts on Bitcoin, and how we got into VC. Before we invite Tim to the stage, here are the top three things that I think all 20-somethings should know about right now. Gen Z is making cash cool again. A new study showed that Gen Z are more likely to pay with cash than millennials. 45% of Gen Z prefer cash for everyday purchases. They use this as a way of budgeting and saving money. Another crazy statistic, 64% of Gen Z don't have a credit card at all. This is all from a new article that Bloomberg published this week. This is the trend that I'm following closely. I'd love to hear from you on this, our listeners. So at the end of this interview, speak with some of your friends and let me know what they say. I spoke with a few of my friends who said that this was spot on. But then also a few of my friends thought that the results on this might be a little skewed. So let me know what you think. And now for the second point on our list, Jeff Bezos, the co-founder and former CEO of Amazon, criticized President Joe Biden on Sunday, July 3rd, publicly over Twitter. To simply share the facts of what happened, the president sent out a tweet about the rise of gas prices, asking companies running gas stations to lower prices at the pump. Jeff Bezos quickly and immediately responded to this tweet, calling it a misdirection and deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics and how inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to make a statement like that. With the rise of gas prices and, of course, inflation, this is something that I'm also paying really close attention to. So let me know your thoughts on that. And the final point on our list of need-to-know things for 20-somethings, this also has to do with gas. Shell, the oil and gas company, is accepting applications for a Gen Z TikTok social media manager. I thought this news story is pretty unique, funny, and interesting. They're looking for ways to diversify its social media efforts and appeal to younger and a greener audience. So if you are someone who's killing it on TikTok, this could be a cool opportunity for you. But that's something that I'm also following closely to find out why Shell is trying to appeal to Gen Z. All right, those are the top three things that I think all 20-somethings should know about. All right, everybody, we are going to bring the legendary Tim Draper to the stage to talk about his best advice for people in their 20s. But before we do, I could really use your help on something super important. I am searching for all Gen Z founders building products or services in the creator economy, gig economy, or Web3. So if you have someone in mind, or if this individual is you, please DM me on Instagram or Twitter at Landon20s. That is L-A-N-D-O-N 2-0-S. Message me as soon as possible. All right, let's dive in with Tim Draper to hear his best advice for people in their 20s. Tim, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the In Their 20s podcast. This is going to be so much fun today, speaking about your career um, in a space that I have so much interest in, venture capital, working with founders. 
you're really, um, you know, you're at the top and you've been in this space for a while. You've seen a lot. So excited to share your insights today. Terrific. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's kind of funny that I'm in my 60s talking to a group called In Their 20s. Yeah, exactly. But, but I think it'll be great. We'll see how it goes. Exactly. You've been around the block. You've seen things. I hope, so, we can, I hope the communication gap isn't too broad. No, it's going to be wonderful, Tim. Okay. Um, it really is. Knowing about, uh, you know, <clears throat> just especially the resources that you've been able to give, how to be a startup hero, your books. I mean, we're about to get uh, into the nitty gritty. So before we really talk about your career, um, I want to bring it back even further um, because you were exposed to VC um, and, you know, this area, capital allocation very early. Um, you know, your father was a pioneer also in the space. I'm curious, uh, and I have this uh, two-part question for you. Uh, what was it like being exposed to VC at such an early age? Um, and what initially sparked your interest in wanting to pursue this yourself? <laughs> Well, my grandfather was the first venture capitalist in the Silicon Valley ever. And my dad was sort of a pioneer in venture capital. And when uh, uh, my friends, they said, yeah, my dad's a doctor, my dad's a fireman, or my dad's a, you know, accountant or a ventriloquist or whatever, everybody knew what those were. And I said, my dad's a venture capitalist. Um, it always required some explanation. Um, and, and uh, my dad said, well, just say I'm an investment banker. And I said, well, yeah, that's right. But what do you do? And he said, oh, I invest in small companies and hope they get bigger. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much my explanation when I was younger. And then what got me into venture capital was that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, uh, and I, I couldn't decide which company I was going to back, well, I was going to start. I was going to either start a submarine company, a, <clears throat> um, a hologram company, a um, music, um, something that was, ended up being like iTunes, and, uh, you know, music, digitized music company, or a company that is one big corporation offshore that allowed people to invest and then um, only pay their taxes when they repatriated. So those are my four ideas coming out of business school and I couldn't decide which one I really wanted to dedicate myself to. And I realized that maybe I didn't have the DNA to be an entrepreneur because I was so, uh, I was not focused enough. And, um, and so I clearly had the DNA to be a venture capitalist and it was the right job for me. Totally. I love hearing that because um, I, I really <laughs> feel it. Uh, me personally, you know, I founded this podcast. I have many, I guess you can say attributes of a founder. Like it's fun to build things, but um, you know, I think the question a lot of founders don't ask enough is, am I willing to spend 10 plus years on this? Sometimes even more. Um, and to be honest, I haven't found that one thing, um, product, service, SaaS, whatever it might be that maybe I can spend that long on. And that's what's piqued my interest in VC. I'd love to have my hands in multiple places. Um, what I'm interested in today, I might be interested in another industry next week or next year that I want to really dive in on. Um, so it's great to have that founder mentality mm -hmm. because sometimes building a fund, building a firm, a lot of VCs, and I think you'd agree with me because um, we're about to get into building uh, your firm, it kind of, you, you're a founder. I mean, you've built something from nothing into something. So 
a lot of the attributes. Yeah, it turns yeah. out if you are a VC, you you do get some of that founder thing. Yes. Um, and you, but it, um, you're really relying on other people to run their businesses. I think there's also something where I feel really good about venture capital in that it um, it allowed me to, um, in effect, decentralize decision making. And you know, now that we have Bitcoin, a, a decentralized currency, I, I've been very focused and deeply thinking about decentralization and how important it is for a society. When a society is centralized, you have all these, um, you have individuals who are fallible making decisions for huge populations. Like, I mean, Putin decided to go to war and none of his people really wanted to go to war and none of the Ukrainians wanted to go to war. And somehow he just decided to go to war. And so that was one of those centralized decisions that was just awful for many people. Um, President Xi of China uh, shut down, you know, locked down all the people in Shanghai. And he didn't really realize the incredible repercussions that that would have um, on the global supply chain. He's, he's basically destroyed a huge part of the global supply chain. There are boats that have been in that harbor for three weeks, four weeks, haven't been able to deliver their stuff. Now there are little cottage industries of people um, catering to those people who are stuck on those boats. <laughs> um, you know, and, and he, he decided that he just didn't like crypto because he felt he wasn't controlling it enough. And, and he just walked away from an incredible industry all the miners left and all that stuff. So decentralization is sort of a, a motto I'm trying to promote, the idea that decisions are best made locally. Um, even the Supreme Court uh, decision on, uh, on Roe v. Wade uh, about abortion uh, is, uh, is a centralized decision that might be good for sort of some of the population, but not good for another part of the population. And so, so um, whereas that decision made locally, it would work much better so that we're not imposing one set of values or another set of values on, on another part of the population uh, of the US. I think the more of those centralized decisions that get made, the more dangerous it is for people. Uh, I think it's, you know, it doesn't really make sense to have a lot of like um, uh, automatic guns in the cities, but it makes a lot of sense to have guns out in the country. Totally. And, and, uh, and so having the cities drive the gun decisions uh, probably isn't right. So all these decisions that are really difficult should be decentralized. So the decentralization of, of uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies allows people to start thinking, hey, what else could be decentralized? Uh, and governance is definitely one of them. I think the decisions yes. should be made first by the family, then by the community, then by the city, then, and if it, if a dis, I mean, the best presidents are, would be the ones who, who basically did nothing. 
but you know like right. my wife says my wife says we have you know we we have big decisions and little decisions and uh and tim you make all the big decisions and i'll make all the little decisions we just haven't had a big decision yet mm-hmm. and i sort of think that that's the way a, a federal government or a state government should operate they shouldn't be looking for more decisions to make they should be just waiting for when the entire population needs some sort of a decision. And I don't think like Roe v. Wade shouldn't, that shouldn't be a federal decision. That should be a local decision. That should be decided by the family first. Yes. <clears throat> so I, I, don't, um, I don't know how we get back down there, but you know, when the US was started, it was all about freedom and trust and we trusted people to make those decisions and the country grew and grew and grew and it had an entrepreneurial feel to it uh we created hollywood we created the silicon valley we created the the oil business and the car business all those things happened because people were free to operate they didn't have government intervention and then when the government started to intervene it it, it killed off industries. So like railroads, government stopped the railroads um, because they decided they couldn't have more than a hundred cars on them or something. They, they made a bunch of arbitrary decisions that didn't make any sense in a lot of cases. So, so it's best, and if you're running a business, it's best to decentralize and allow the individual generally to make the decision because you, if you're the CEO of Amazon, you don't want to be the one telling everybody how they're supposed to bend their knees when they load the conveyor belt. You know, that let them figure it out. Another great thing with Amazon, I love that example. You know, they're really focused on single-threaded leadership. Um, people responsible for this, that, and this, and they're going to take care of their responsibilities. So as a capital allocator, yes, it could be probably nervous sometimes, you know, hoping that your companies that you are investing in are taking care of their responsibilities and doing what they have to do. But at the end of the day, that's the bet that you have to make on these people, um, which is why the early stage is such an interesting area to invest in, because a lot of times this is before traction. Um, this is before product market fit, I mean, way before a lot of times. Um, and all you have really is, you know, you, you can look at the market um, and you can see the problem that they're trying to solve with the actual um, tool or product service they're trying to put in place to solve that. Uh, but then also the team, you got to be able to judge character in a very fast, efficient and effective way uh, when you make these investments. But Tim, we're going to get even deeper to, um, you know, some of these investments because you've made some insane investments. I mean, everybody knows your track record. I don't want to spoil our listeners, but I have the list here, the companies. I'm really excited to see what did you see in these early bets, but we got to go a little before. Um, Around age 27, 28, I believe, Tim, um, this is when you launched Draper Associates. Um, Fun fact for people listening, you know, obviously, but you were working in IB before. So my question here, this is targeted to emerging fund managers, people interested in making a big change in their life, even people who aren't into VC people who are currently working at a job looking to make that big step. Why did you decide to bet on yourself at 27, 28 and um, leave IB and launch Draper Associates? Well, half my job in investment banking was 
uh, venture capital. I, I worked for Alex Brown and Sons. Uh, I guess they're part of B of A now. Um, and that was a great experience. I had great, a couple of great bosses. But something I noticed was, you know, while they had a fund and they had all sorts of uh, stuff going on, they didn't know as much about the venture capital business as I did. Um, and I thought, because I grew up in the venture business. So that was one of the reasons uh, I went ahead and um, started. And the other reason was that um, there was kind of an interesting family opportunity. Um, my dad had uh, uh, some companies in a portfolio that were worth about, they were private companies. They were worth about $2 million. And I was able to go out and, <laughs> and it was an ad in an SBIC and they were kind of cats and dogs, but um, I was able to go to the SBA and use that as my, um, uh, the backing and borrow $6 million from the SBA to get going. And I remember the SBA only had four people SBIC program only had four people working there and they managed about 600 SBICs. By the way, today there are about 600 SBICs, but there are about 800 people managing. So clearly we've got bureaucratic bloat going on. But um, back then there were four people and, and when I was applying, uh, the, the guy was terrific and we had a great conversation. He said, um, well, one of the criteria here is that you've had 10 years of investment experience. And I said, oh, I've been investing since I was 10 years old. And he just goes, check. <laughs> and I thought, good, because I thought maybe I'd have to be investing other people's money or investing. It was just like, do you have some investment experience? Now, I'm sure now the, the criteria for an SBIC is ridiculous. They're, uh, you know, you've got to you get a full proctology exam before you get to start one. Um, it uh, anyway, that's how I got started with borrowed money, and uh, and after about three years, uh, the SBA had moved me to their first to their watch list and then to their dirt list, as uh, and they were about to call the loan. And I flew back to Washington and said, no, 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 don't call this loan. They, you know, it, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And about a year or two later, uh, we had five IPOs. And that was um, the IPO window kind of opens and then closes. The, it opened in 1991. And, um, and I had five IPOs. And one of them was parametric technology and ended up being now it still is. I mean, I think it's a ten billion dollar business. Uh, it's, wow. it's still the biggest software company in the New England area, uh, and that was the beginning of my record. So I was able to pay back the SBA, um, go out and raise a fund. Uh, I brought in John Fisher. Uh, we we went and raised a fund together uh, and had a had a really um, good experience. Uh, and then that fund went very well. Uh, and it was mostly software. And then 
uh, we brought on Steve Jurvetson and we had another great fund and that, um, that was mostly internet companies. Um, and then we had another one, another one, another one, but um, then things went, um, I don't know if you want to get into this, but um, in 2001, the markets started to slide like they have today. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it got very difficult to raise money. We were doing very well because we were investing in um, internationally, uh, but our domestic fund had really suffered. And a lot of the things that happened were what's happening now is that the people got a little too tight with their money and they um, that, that made it difficult for anybody to start a new business. It made it difficult for companies that were already going to grow because they couldn't raise money. So it was similar in that way to now, although even, even worse. And, uh, and it lasted for a long, long time. And the regulators kept coming down with more and more regulations. They had the Sarbanes-Oxley. It made it super hard to go public. So that even cramped down on the capital markets even more. Uh, of course, they always eventually come back. So that was good. But, uh, and then at one point, you know, we were on top of the world for a while. We had about 12 partners. And, uh, and eventually I realized I needed to go solo. Uh, I had to be the sole decision maker because I, I felt as though I could make better decisions. So it was, a, um, it's, been a, it's been a wild career. It's yeah. been great fun. We've done a lot of interesting things, but anyway, that's how it started. Totally. And again, sounds very reminiscent of what we're seeing today um, in the world. Uh, when we see moments of uncertainty, you know, you really need to take a risk. So Tim Draper, it's clear that you are one of the best risk takers out there. Um, and I want to break down your formula for taking a risk in your 20s. And again, just to look at your track record, you've taken big bets on early stage companies like Tesla, SpaceX, Robinhood. Um, you just mentioned that you made another big risk in 99, um, having the first firm in Silicon Valley to invest uh, with offices overseas. That's a huge risk. And also, uh, we can see the Bitcoin tie you're wearing right now. Uh, you've taken a big risk, you know. With yeah, that's a big risk too. Exactly. Right. So what's the formula for taking a risk in your 20s? Like, what is that advice that you would give someone watching right now that wants to take a risk in their career, especially during times of uncertainty? What should they be considering? And when do they know that the step is right? Something that helped me when I was um, going through a lot of this, this decision-making was, um, I, I guess I flash back to calculus because in calculus, they talk about uh, the extremes. They say, you know, what if it goes to zero? What if it goes to infinity? And then what's the likely scenario? And, uh, and that, um, you know, what are the, the limits? What are the limits of this? What are the limits of that? I, well, for one thing, when I was in my 20s, I, I had a quiet confidence about myself. And um, as when things started to go badly, all I just thought were, was, oh, this is just, you know, uh, you know, I, it's like you're stepping from rock to rock to rock and getting across the lake um, and you slip and you fall in, but then you're just going to get back on a rock and go, go again. Um, and you're going to get to the other side of the lake. And I think that 
um, there was a little bit of that quiet confidence in myself. I always felt as though I was going to be successful. I think a lot of what we teach at Draper University is confidence. Uh, we, we make sure that the people have enough confidence uh, to achieve what they want to achieve. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, and that confidence can look like a cockeyed optimist. It can look like somebody who's just too optimistic. Uh, but if I have a pretty good sense that in all likelihood, if I stick with it long enough, it's going to be a big success, then I will do it. And, uh, and sometimes it isn't. <clears throat> um, and, and I've been lucky because after the parametric success, I didn't have to worry about um, feeding my family at least for a year in advance or something, you know, and we had a house. So we were kind of set in that way and not, you know, I was more in my mid-30s rather than or in my 20s. In my 20s, I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. But they... Uh, they, that does make a difference because then you can say, well, as long as I'm not putting my kid's future at risk, you know, for the next couple of years, I can go ahead and try something. And then I look and I go, well, um, and if I try a few things, then maybe one of them will work and the other ones won't. Um, and that would be okay. If they all fail, then you know I'm kind of back to square one. And that I that kind of risk I was comfortable enough taking. And the Bitcoin thing, um, that was a huge amount of money for me when I made the investment. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I made it because I had I had real confidence that this currency was going to be better than anything that was out there. Uh, it, and, and I had studied it in pretty good depth because I, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin that I lost to the, to the Mt. Gox thing uh, way, way back, right at the beginning, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin and I lost it. But during that time, I thought after I lost it to Mt. Gox, I thought that was the end of Bitcoin, but it wasn't. And I thought, oh boy, people really need this. They need this currency that's digital and open and transparent and, and keeps perfect records and all those things that, are, that Bitcoin does global. Uh, and, and that's why I, I had that same kind of quiet confidence that this, is, this thing's going up. And, and I did know that if it went down, it was gonna go way down like to zero but if it went up um you know they're they're really there it might be a theoretical limit when bitcoin's at 10 million but i even then it could continue up uh 10 million dollars per bitcoin and so i have just i bought it and i have just ridden it up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and I have a sort of a real strong commitment to it in that I just know that 
governance is going to have to compete with other governance. People are, governments are going to have to compete for you, for the young people, the, the workers, the businesses, the money, the whatever of the world. And they don't know it yet. They still think that they're geographic monopolies and they can do whatever they want. And they have been recently doing whatever they want. And I think that's a reaction mm -hmm. to Bitcoin where they sort of go, the internet, they let rip because that was kind of fun and they got to interact with people internationally and all that. But Bitcoin changed the, the nature of their controlling currencies. You know, yep. They were always able to control their people by controlling their currencies. And now they can't control their people and they haven't recognized that yet. They, they have to start thinking not about controlling people, but attracting people through trust and freedom. Exactly. And that's something they're not quite ready to do, or at least some of them. The, the smaller countries are loving this because they're saying, we've been at the mercy of the dollar all this time. Mm -hmm. We'd like to have something that's, that's better. And this is better. It's just better currency. So I, that was that risk, but my risks on individual companies were not as drastic as you might think, even though you can, they do become very, those funds become very concentrated. So, you know, whereas we'd lose probably half our companies, Tesla made a huge impact or SpaceX or, or uh, Hotmail or Skype or Baidu, they all made a big impact on the funds they were in. Uh, and so in venture capital, you have a very diversified portfolio going in and a very concentrated portfolio coming out mm -hmm. as time goes on. So I guess it starts as we're not taking too big a risk because we're so well diversified, but it ends with, yes, this is very risky because, you know, we're all relying on this one company. Totally. Um, so I, I think in some ways it's riskier to start a business that is not a venture fund, but in some ways you're, you're betting on yourself even more if you're going to be an entrepreneur. You're saying, look, I know that I know how to make money. I know that I can figure this out. And I know it's just one brick at a time I'm going to build this business. If you have that attitude, you could be a great entrepreneur. And Tim, you mentioned that you're committed to Bitcoin. I'd even add another word there. Um, you have strong conviction. There's something that I follow called entrepreneurial conviction. That's when you can't stop thinking about something. Uh, you really need to build it. You need to invest in it. You really need to be a part of it. Um, so, you know, you don't have to follow everybody else. This is for more of our listeners. Um, but start to develop your own thesis, you know, start to develop uh, kind of a list of things that you're very convicted about, because when it goes down, you know, you can see Tim is still very convicted about it and believes that it's going to go up and be fine. And, um, and that's conviction, you know, when you really believe in something and you have data to support it, um, it doesn't matter if what goes up or goes down. Uh, Tim, this has been such an awesome conversation. I have one final question for you. Um, and this will be a quick one because I know you're a super busy guy. Look, there are so many 20-somethings right now that are struggling, um, really upset that we haven't found our purpose or our passion yet, 
we're grieving over missing out on a college graduation or the fact that we maybe still don't know what Bitcoin is. Um, what is your lasting advice for 20-somethings? The one, because you've shared some wonderful pieces of advice, but that one thing that all people in their 20s should know. Okay, well, since you have been through the pandemic and a lot of you missed out on a couple of years of college, I mean, you, you had to do it through Zoom or with your family. I would think about that and say, okay, that was like having a gap year where I worked for my parents. Um, I think if I had one piece of advice for every single person who's had to go through that, where they were separated from all these other people, I think you want to hug all your friends all the time and just get back to a society where we all are attached again, because the Zoom calls have allowed us to become a little unattached. And, uh, and I think, you know, go to the go to the big events and get to know more and more people. And when you go to those events, ask everybody what they do. And if you can find somebody who's really successful, take really like when, where they, they are not trying to game it, um, take really close notes. Uh, it's worth it to sort of make friends with somebody older because they will have something to say that might, at least for their generation was the truth or, the, or, or really good advice for their generation. But just take, and every piece of advice, take it with a grain of salt. Um, I say go Bitcoin, because I've got a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, look, look deeply into the motivations of people as you go from one to the next and never think of, of one as bad or one as good. Don't look at like, oh, he's a Democrat, so that's bad, or he's a Republican because that's bad. Don't look at it that way. Think, think this is a person, they're just trying to make it. They're trying to figure out how to survive. They're trying to uh, do good things for people. That's generally what everybody's doing. That's what every religion is about. That's what every, you know, everything is about. Every entrepreneur starts that way. Um, so I would just, I would really connect as much as I could with um, the people that, um, that you would have been connecting with in college. And I would make those physical connections. So make sure that you're in contact with them, give them all a big hug. Uh, get to know them, what they're thinking about, what they're doing. And, um, and if you're going to be, and you're talking about being a venture capitalist, the best thing you can do is, um, is to get to know lots of people and what they do, because your network turns out to be one of the most important um, things you'll have going. And your network starts with your family, grows to your friends, and then friends of friends and friends of their friends. So start tight and build out and keep touch with your family. But um, you probably had more family 
than you needed during college. You, during college, you're probably, it was probably time to break away from the family. Uh, so you might in that way be a year or two behind. Uh, and so build up those social skills and, you know, thinking, think for your next couple of years about your, your EQ and not your IQ. I love that. Tim, that's why I really love talking to you. Um, you know, you're a businessman, you're a venture capitalist, but that advice was just life advice. That was so pure, authentic, and something that, another reason why I love this show, um, because there are a lot of people that will be listening that aren't interested in VC, won't be pursuing entrepreneurship, but they need just the life advice. And I love how you just broke that down. That's for everybody. Um, that's really good advice for everybody that can tune in. So I just want to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for giving time, going extra as well. Um, with how busy your schedule is. This was so much fun. I learned a lot and really, really appreciate you. Good. Well, you did a great job, Landon. That, you, you've got a talent there, so, so keep pounding. Thank you, Tim. Enjoy the rest of your week, and um, I'm excited to stay in touch. And also, um, just thank you to your team as well for helping put this together. You bet. All right. Okay. Bye -bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.